Hello, all, and welcome to the Fantasy and Sci-Fi Fanatics podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Kubo. I have with me today a very special guest, Shannon McGuire. Shannon, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? <laughs> You're on the podcast, so I, like I said before we got recorded, I'm I'm doing excellent. So you were one of our uh, uh, five stars that we had that we were trying to get on at some point within the spring. So it was really Aww. awesome. You know, yeah. Like I said, like I went to buddy with my buddy last night out to dinner and. Uh, we had about an hour conversation about your books and uh, we kind of retooled a little bit what our summer reading list is going to be uh, based off of your uh, your novels. So I'm really excited. I, I haven't read any yet and he's given a few to me for my birthday and things um, and Christmas. So uh, he was like, can you just wait because he wants to do a reread uh, of a few of yours. So I was like, I'll wait, but I'm not going to wait too long. So I'm really excited for the spring to get here in April and start those buddy reads with him. So, but I'm anxious to, uh, you know, to learn more about your writing style and your background. I feel for me as a reader, it always helps me, you know, to get more immersed in, uh, you know, into someone's novels. So really excited today. Uh, I guess we'll start right with that first one. What has your writing journey been like up until this point? And any way you want to take that question, answer it is totally fine with me. So I found out writing was an option when I was a kid. I was a child in the 1980s, which was really sort of the golden age of anthology television. I know that people like to point at The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, which were earlier, as being the greats of the genre. And they are, they pioneered it. But because they pioneered it, they were kind of alone in that space for a lot of the time. And then in the 80s, we had this enormous boom of science fiction and horror-themed anthology shows, Tales from the Dark Side, Monsters, uh, Friday the 13th, the series was really an anthology show, Freddy's Nightmares, all of these, and I, I watched them all. And one of my favorites was a show called Ray Bradbury Presents. Oh, I love that show! <laughs> yeah, so you have the title credits, and at the end of the title credits, it would go to this little old man, who I probably would not see as as old if I watched it again today, but this little <laughs> typewriter pounding away. And then he would pull the sheet of paper out of the typewriter and throw it up in the air, which is very bad authorial ha habit to get in. Don't, don't do that. You will never <laughs> order, but he would pull the sheet of paper out of the typewriter and throw it into the air. And then it would float down and form the logo. And I hated that man. I hated him so completely because he was on the screen for like 30 seconds and I only got 27 minutes of story. I wanted another 30 seconds of story. So one day I finally complained to my grandmother, who the hell is that? Why is he here? Why are they giving this man time every week? And she said, well, that's Ray Bradbury. He wrote all these stories. And I... I was gobsmacked. I had never considered that people were allowed to write stories because everyone was very clear that these were fiction. They were not true. So they were lies, but lying wasn't allowed. Lying was bad. And also stories were big, important things. How could anyone be allowed to be a big enough liar to tell such important things? And uh, so I found out that stories were an option and immediately decided that's what I was going to do. Uh, demanded a typewriter of my own. My first typewriter weighed more than I did. <laughs> I could not lift it or move it. It sounded like gunfire when I typed. And since I was a small child, I had the sleeping habits of a cat. You know, kids are up hours of the night whenever they wake up. And as long as I stayed in my room, no one cared. So I would stay in my room and at 3 a.m. I'd start writing a story and it sounded like the mafia were trying to take out the apartment. <laughs> bang, 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 bang
Um, so, so that was that was how I started my writing journey, and from there it went into fanfic, uh, because in fan fiction it was acceptable for girls to write this sort of stories, and for a long, long time, it was not acceptable in genre fiction. If you weren't writing about sexy sexness, you weren't allowed to be a writer. If you were a girl. And that was a message that was very much put forth by the background radiation of the media around us. It's not like anyone said, well, you can't do it, but you knew you couldn't do it. It was not allowed. So I wrote a lot of fanfic and I wrote fanfic for years and years and years. And I did it while trying to write my own original stuff at the same time, uh, which no one wanted to buy. But that was fine because it was keeping me busy. Um, and finally, I finished a book that was good enough to publish, and I found an agent and started publishing books and have made a career out of doing things I've been told girls aren't allowed to do. A very successful one. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I got to say, as a history teacher, I absolutely love when somebody like yourself, somebody, you know, has that that attitude towards that and just, just turns the tide. Like, to me, that is history. And that's, it's just awesome to hear those kinds of stories. Like one of my favorites is like, is like Malcolm X and uh, I'm from Michigan. So his like fourth grade teacher told him he couldn't be a lawyer, you know, based off the color of his skin and he became a very successful lawyer. So I feel like you're, you know, you're in that type of category. So that's a very, very awesome uh, origin story, you know, for an author, if you will. So that's cool. I'm not trailblazing all that much, honestly. Uh, that happened really in the 90s when urban fantasy was getting started. We had Tanya Huff. We had Emma Bull. Mm. Uh, we had um, Crud Cakes. I've just forgotten her name. Um, Ann Crispin, mm. Jan Hagen, you know, all of these women were coming out and were Melissa, Melinda Snodgrass were coming out and were getting their stories onto shelves. And that pride opened the space for people like me. And that was important. Because uh, I, I don't want to be a bellwether. I don't want to be the one that is making the changes. I want to be part of a group. I don't like being alone. Smurfette mm. is not a fun place to live. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, it's good. It's a good time. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that too, you know, with, with those particular, by the way, great authors. Um, and I had talked to a couple of, um, of older authors, um, for instance, in the African-American community. Um, who, you know, who were trailblazing, but they had mentioned, you know, like people who came after them, who really changed, you know, their community within the genre. And, you know, I would put yourself in that class. And they made a really good point that, you know, if people aren't breaking through, like they're important, they're really important, right? But you also really need that secondary generation in there, you know, to oh, really, you, do. you know, really root it down. And, you know, and I thought that he made a really good, you know, really good point there. So I would definitely put, you, you know, you in that category. Thank uh, you. Particular. So, you know, and, you know, I've talked to a couple people recently, you know, about, you know, your novels in particular, um, you know, with horror and urban fantasy. And, you know, they, they definitely have that respect for you, you know, in terms of that. And they, I feel like, you know, I just asked myself, you know, because that was an interesting concept that he brought up to me because I'd never heard anybody say that before. But, you know, as a historian, I'm like, that's it's a it's a solid point you know and you look at you know civil rights movement or anything women's suffrage anything and you know I, I never considered that to be a type of class of person you know in different categories so I thought it was interesting so yeah. frequently the first person into the room doesn't want to make room for anyone else because we've all been raised that there's no room for us yeah 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 
if, if you're the first queer person in the room, you are already the outlier. You are already changing things. If you're the first woman in the room, if you're the first person of color in the room, if you're the first disabled person in the room. And there is a natural human instinct, I think, not to hold that door open because yeah. you're afraid that if the door is open, you'll be pushed right back out again. Yeah. So you can look back over the history of genre, which was started by a woman. And even as the message is being sent that women don't write this, we'll find a woman again and again. There's one or two women always. And as long as they are this tiny little outlier group, they're not a threat. And so it's it recently people have gotten better about holding that door open and refusing yeah. to slam. And that is good because we are getting a tiny bit closer to parity in the room. We're yeah. still near there. Authors of color are still wildly underrepresented. It's hard for their work to gain traction. Female authors frequently find themselves unable to get male readers to pick them up. I have met men who have said to my face with the hole in their face that makes the flappy sounds that they don't read books by women because they can't relate to them. But I'm expected to read books by men and relate to those. All the time. All the time, exactly. So we're, we're getting a tiny bit closer to parody. We still have a long, long way to go. No, I totally agree with you. And that's, uh, that's going to be for our audience, a very resonating theme throughout February. She wrote uh, between both uh, these interviews and um, the people who, uh, the women, sorry, who Benjamin has interviewed and, you know, and blogged with and um, is going to be doing guest blogs with. And um, uh, Jennifer Swift is one of those who I had spoken to. Yeah. Um, you know, she had mentioned, I actually don't know if this was in the interview, but she had mentioned in a, um, when I had talked to her that day that, you know, she had chosen her name based off of, um, you know, the fact that her original um, uh, pen name based off the fact that, you know, she was afraid men weren't going to read her, you know, her, mm -hmm. her books. And I was like, that is not something any guy has to deal with. And I was just like, that, that's silly to me, you know, that, but then that very day, I was on, you know, one of the, oh, fans of Urban Fantasy, I think is the Facebook group um, or Urban Fantasy novels. And a guy literally, like you just said, went on there and said, I refuse to read anything by a woman. And I was like, have you ever heard of Ursula K. Le Guin? Have you ever heard of Anne, you know, McCaffrey? I'm like, have you ever heard of, and I, you know, I just listed like, I don't even know, like 20 female authors. And he was just like, nope. I'm like, yeah, right. You know, I'm like, that's not, a, I was like, you never heard of Mary Shelley, you know, like I, it's like, it's astounding to me that anybody would even say that, but. Well, you know, a lot of it is how we talk about things. Uh, a fair criticism of my work, because sometimes the encrypt, encrypted series gets filed in paranormal romance because of the cover, which I love the covers. I fought for that. Cover. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes it gets filed over in paranormal romance. And so paranormal romance readers will read it and review it. And usually they're like, this is terrible paranormal romance. Because it is. Because I'm not writing romances. Yeah, yeah. There are romantic relationships because those are a thing that the majority of humans experience. Not all humans, but the majority of humans enjoy and, and seek out romantic relationships. But I don't write graphic sex. It doesn't appeal to me. And romance is not the point. I'm not holding to romance genre conventions or making promises. Yeah, yeah. However... If a female author has two characters kiss, there is a non-zero chance that their book will now get filed under romance. There was an extremely popular epic fantasy a couple years ago that had a literal 60-page digression with a sex demon who sexily sexes men to sexy death. 
and decides that the man that she is trying to sex to death is the best lover she has ever had because a 16-year-old male virgin is absolutely the best lover, a sexy sex demon who immortally sexed into death with her sexy sexness would have encountered. I have never seen anyone call that book a romance or erotica. Interesting. And a lot of it does come back to the gender of the author, but also just to our culture. You know, you said the people you talk to, I'm sorry, the women, women are people. Yeah, yeah. And that frequently gets left out of the conversation. If I say there are 10 people in the room and someone walks into the room and there are 10 men in there, they're not gonna bat an eye. Of course, that's 10 people. There are 10 people in the room, they walk into the room, it's 10 women. Why didn't you tell me I was walking into a room full of women? Well, I, I did. I told you you were walking into a room full of people. Yeah. My personhood is not connected to my gender. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great point. And yeah, I feel like that comes up to a lot of different topics and discussions I've had just within the last, I would say, like couple of weeks. But we're, we're doing a lot of, I don't know, I'm a teacher, so I had one parent get really upset about teaching this this or that and I was like oh, this is like a very basic <laughs> like like equal rights kind of thing but uh yeah it was interesting so yeah I definitely I definitely see what you're saying there I definitely think it's a there's a lot of huge issues not just within you know our culture but particularly within you know the writing community itself with that and I'm actually in particular thinking a lot of issues popped up like there were certain men that I had known you know and had met and you know and referenced and things uh, within the writing community for years and I did not know how you know that they were treating other women within you know other authors other authors within you know the community and writers and then you know during the pandemic you know people had time to sit down and you know uh, I don't know if they were you know really just uh, you know looking inward or at their experiences but you know a lot of them shared these you know horrible circumstances that you know these authors I was referencing you know um, had things they said to them things they did to them and you know, I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm one of those people where I, I will review your book every single time, no matter, you know, um, if I liked it or didn't like it. And now, you know, I'll give an honest review, but like, those are people where like, I might read their book, but I'll never tell anybody that I read it because, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to help them out in any way. But yeah, I think there's a lot of issues that, you know, in particular still aren't being discussed um, within the community. So we're hoping again with, you know, this type of month and, you know, discussing with different authors, yeah. you know, that I think that was, that was less about having time to sit and think and more about the fact that several of the people that got called out in the first year of the pandemic in 2020 mm -hmm. were folks that you saw at all the major conventions. Oh, that's a good point. Actually. I didn't think of it. They that would way. have all of their friends. They would have their whole little posse and you're alone. And mm -hmm. the mission was very strong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the internet, we know that it empowers people to anonymously harass. We know that it empowers people to be jerks, but it can also empower people to say things with their names and faces attached that they wouldn't necessarily be comfortable saying while they were in the room with someone yeah. who was in any sort of position of power above them. And that includes my books sell better than yours, so I'm a more important author, or just I'm one of the cool kids and you're not. Removing the physicality from the equation made a lot of people more able to bring things up. And some of this had been coming to a head while we still had conventions. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. yeah. Hmm. I don't know, I, that, that's, yeah, that's something I didn't consider. I, 
you know, and that's what, like, my friend, he asked, he goes, well, what, what does it really matter? And I'm like, well, wait, I said, well, wait a minute. I said, what, what do you mean does it really matter? He's like, well, what does it matter how or why people, you know, like, come forth? I said, well, to me, it doesn't necessarily, I said, but I said, that's not about them. I said, for me, it was about the fact that we were perpetuating some of these people, you know, and it's like, that's what affected me as I was like, you know, how could we... I was like, how could I, you know, continuously share people, you know, some of these, you know, men in particular, you know, their products and their tweets or whatever, and not know of those things. And I said, I would have liked to have known of that sooner. So I'm not helping them, I guess. And I was like, uh-huh. to me, it was like, I said, that's where I want to be more wary in the future on who I am, you know, propagating. Um, but yeah, you make a really right. there that I not considered, but yeah, we had, I had a lot of discussions with a lot of, um, male authors in particular in the community the last two years. I'm like, you know, like what, what can we do to be, you know, to be better friends, even, you know, better friends, coworkers to be a better community. I think if you're not asking yourself that, you know, and I think that's really where I would like to, the February, she wrote that Benjamin Blackmore came up with, cause it's like, you know, it's just hopefully just something small that we can do to, you know, shed some light on just great authors, even, you know, and, you know, it's just a shame that people do do that, you know, like you said, you know, um, some people don't use this for the right thing. Um, like there's a lot of people that don't use it for the right thing, but yeah. Some people will, will abuse literally anything, any position of power, any position of reverence, you will find someone. And this is not a gender thing. This is not a male, female thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone period abusing it. Yeah. Now, when it comes to, oh, I couldn't control myself, sexual harassment in communities, that is more frequently perpetrated by men. Um, and I think that's a cultural thing rather than anything innate. You know, when you're taught that that is an okay way to behave and that women are there to be consumed, you are a lot more likely to behave in that way. Yeah. So I think that as the conversation goes on, we'll be able to make it clearer that no, that's actually not okay. And we would like you to stop, please. Yeah, yeah. And like, in particular, um, yeah, like I, you know, like I just discussed with some people, you know, like, I think, it, I don't know, I, I guess I'm thankful for the pandemic, partly, or, you know, that time away from people, because like you said, right, like, having that lack of, you know, the physical presence, you know, makes it easier. And I don't know, I just think people were more open to having these types of conversations, mm-hmm. you know, after a certain point. And it's nice, because again, you know, you want I love the writing community, um, particularly, you know, like fantasy and sci-fi horror. I just, I, I meet so many cool people and, you know, get to talk to great people like yourself and, you know, get to share in this great common interest. And, you know, again, I just think it's really important to even other issues, you know, that maybe there's other issues that we're not discussing, you know, that, that need to be talked about. And I feel like if you don't talk about them, then how do people know about them and how, how do they help to make the community better? Um, right. You know, and there were some other things that came out right during the pandemic or, you know, even before, like you said, you know, where, you know, people were like, oh, you know, I can't remember which bookstore it was, but it was like a really famous bookstore out West where like, you know, the owner was an author and a writer and, you know, people, I don't know, thought that he walked down water and it turned out like he wasn't paying his workers, you know? And I just think there's a lot of things like that, that, you know, kind of, you know, are probably out there and we don't know, but I think it's important to, I think we have a, you know, particularly in the U.S., I think we have such a, um, a thing now, like with talking to one another and actually having conversations. And it's like, 
I don't know. I personally think that that's our strength and a lot of people I think now see it as our weakness, uh, which mm -hmm. I don't think is a good thing, but. And it is nice to see people figuring out the difference between gossip and keeping folks aware of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it actually. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, so I, obviously I've looked at my notes and things, but for our audience, uh, what genres uh, do you currently write in and what drew you to these genres? So right, right this second, I mostly write in urban fantasy and modern adult fantasy. And what drew me to those genres was growing up loving them. Um, you know, my modern adult fantasy is also considered portal fantasy, which is a subgenre of fantasy that is closely connected to isekai out of Japan, but is not the same. <laughs> and was very, very popular again during the 80s, because the reason that things go in cycles is that humans just recreate the things we loved over and over and over again. I like the idea of a world where anything is possible. I like the idea of a world where you are not actually limited by any of the factors of your birth. You can do anything, you can be anything, you'll have a nice time. Uh, I was a folklore major in school. I went to the University of California, Berkeley, go bears to study fairy tales. And that pretty much is a degree that qualifies you to write urban fantasy and not very much else, so. Hmm. Well, that's cool, that's very interesting. I did not know that, that's awesome. I, I do like what you said there, though, you know, about, you know, where that, you know, the characters or, you know, the people you're writing about aren't restricted by their births. I, I actually, too, like those kinds of fantasies where, you know, you literally can just do anything and, you know, who you are really depends on your actions rather than, you know, what's happened to you necessarily. I think it's a really important message, um, particularly. And I do think that's actually part of why we're seeing such a strong movement away from chosen one narratives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're the chosen one, the only thing that matters about you is the circumstances of your birth. That's a great point that I had not considered. You know, and I, I don't know, a friend of mine I had talked recently, Scott Oden and I talked and um, he was on our first or second interview and we had discussed that chosen one narrative. And it's like, I feel like, and Brandon Samson made a good point in his online lectures too. Um, I just think that, you know, you could own, they've been around for so long and, you know, and like you said, right, you know, some people might still really enjoy those, but yeah, I definitely mm -hmm. like, the, I like, the, what was it, the, the last Jedi sort of thing, right, that like anybody can be a Jedi, you know, you don't have to be the chosen one, you don't have to be right. the Skywalker, you know, like, you can just be a Ray or, you know, a Finn or somebody like that, so yeah, that's, that's actually really And cool. I do enjoy a good chosen one, saying yeah. that we're moving culturally away from them is not the same as saying, oh, they're dead forever. Yeah, 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 no, totally. And like you said, everything goes in cycles too. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, for that third question there. Uh, so what sort of different approaches have you taken when writing your Wayward Children Encrypted or your October Day series? Like, do you try to stick to the same type of um, like writing style for writing a trilogy or a series or do you mix it up a little bit more? Some people I know have a, they like wanna almost write completely different trilogies or series depending on, you know, like what's going on at that time. So what really are your approaches uh, for those? So any work is innately going to have its own style or it's not going to be a separate work. Um, so if I sit down and I start writing something and it sounds like a Toby story, it's pretty clear that where my brain is right now is on Toby and I need to stop this and go work on Toby for a little while. Um, but otherwise I just sit down and I write. You know, I don't have a different approach to anything. The only place where I have really a different approach is my Mira Grant work. Mm. Uh, 
I also write as Mira Grant. And when I'm Mira, I do biomedical science fiction thrillers. And biomedical science fiction thriller, you need to do a crap lot of research. Mm -hmm. And that is obviously a different approach because I don't sit down and figure out how to dispose of bodies or whatever when I'm writing a Toby book. They're a lot more freeform. Even the areas where I know what I'm talking about, there might be a mistake because I didn't do the research because that was not the point of that book. I have met authors that have special writing shoes for different characters and series. I respect them. That is so much more effort than I'm really capable of putting out on a daily basis. I feel like like that's fair. (laughs) I talked to one author and I'm like, like they tried explaining their process for me. And I was like, so you're basically going into your closet and, you know, putting together uh, an entirely different outfit that fits that persona and then putting that on and then waiting a little while you know, for it to, you to know, sink in. yeah, to sink in. And then you're writing. I'm like, I, I can't do that. I'm like, I feel like I have to, maybe I'll be able to do it later. I don't know, but you know, each to their own, but yeah, I was just like, okay, that's, you know, it's definitely, yeah. it works for them, but I don't think it works for me. <laughs> yeah. Whatever works for you is the right yeah. way to write. My, my most commonly given, and I think only true piece of writing advice is that 99% of writing advice is bullshit. Yeah. 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 It really if is. it doesn't work for you, it's bad advice. Yeah. It's like clothes that don't fit, right? Like, why would you try to put on clothes that don't fit, uh, you know, or that you don't find flattering or, you know. Exactly. Like, Just because it was cute on somebody else, that doesn't mean you have to wear it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think that if you want to be a writer, you have to read. I've met people that are like, oh, when I never read when I'm writing. And, and I find them a little confusing and kind of terrifying. Like, <laughs> okay. How? How refill brain if no read? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think you have to read. I think the only really th- real thing that is honestly universally true, though, is that 99% of writing advice is going to be bullshit. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Like, I, I mean, no offense to anybody. Maybe some people listening have the books on my shelf. But like, I, you know, like, especially, I, and I, I also think, too, um, I talked to Mallory Kuhn about this, that I think that it also sometimes, you know, like different writing advice hits you differently when you're in a certain spot and you mm-hmm. know, certain tools I tried to use that I wasn't ready for. Um, and, you know, at first and now I'm done with my first book. So it's like, you know, I'm doing draft two for it. It's like now I think I'm ready for some of those tools or, you know, right. some of that writing advice. So I also think, too, it kind of depends on where you're at in your journey. On where you're at. But also not everything. So Stephen King is my absolute favorite author of all time. I have been reading Stephen King since I was nine years old, which is far too young to be reading Stephen King and should have been talked to, but I love Stephen King. He is a flawed human being. We are all flawed human beings. His book on writing is one of the best books of writing advice I've ever read. It has a huge amount of material in it that was very useful to me. And even if nothing in it is useful to you, it's a great look at how someone that has honestly made more money than most of us will ever see figured out how to do this stuff. And one of the things in there he says is that you cannot be a writer and watch television. And that if you have a TV, you should take a fork and jam it in the wall socket behind the TV, see how far in it goes, watch the pretty sparks, and then move on with your day. I watch more television than is strictly healthy. (laughs) I have had people look at the list of shows I enjoy watching and go, how the hell do you have time to do anything else? (laughs) I have always watched TV. It was watching TV that made me fall in love with stories. Yeah. 
I'm not going to stop watching TV just because Stephen King says I should. Yeah. Sometimes I have to be able to passively receive a story rather than actively receiving a story. And, and that's what Law & Order SVU is for. Yeah, you know, yeah. That sort of thing. Uh, Law & Order SVU is propaganda, and I have been trying to cut that out of my diet. But I keep that one because it is the single most hopeful show on television. There is one rape per week in an area the size of New York. Yeah, yeah. Always care. They always do their absolute to find out what happened and who did it. And they believe you. Yeah. And so optimistic, given the world in which I have to live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that Law & Order really does stay on my watch list. Yeah, it's definitely a, my, my wife is like really into it right now in particular. And <laughs> she was like, it's just like you and your, your blue bloods. And I'm like, okay, I, I give you that one. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I have trouble watching it now as a, I think I've watched it more as a teenager. Now as a, as a male adult, that's older. I'm just like, especially who's a teacher. I'm just like, I don't know. I, I think I find it harder now to watch that show because I'm just like, how, like, how do people, I don't know. It just brings up a lot of issues where that just, oh, yeah. I, I get enraged. <laughs> and then I like, I like start to pace like last night and then I can't like function. And it's just like, it's, it gets and crazy. That's a good reason not to watch it. Yeah. I <laughs> just like, oh, and I, I actually couldn't sleep last night. Cause I was thinking about some things that, you know, that happened in the show. And I actually almost um, originally became a, a police officer. I actually wanted to uh, work for the FBI um, to um, find missing children. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I talked to a couple of them and I found out that I'm just not that type of person. Um, so I became right. a instead because I have found out that I'm, I'm a great person, but if you hurt a kid, then I'm not so great a person. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, we don't need good choices. Yeah. We don't need any more Dexters out there, you know? So I decided to, uh, to try and go on the other side uh, and help them ahead of time and, you know, keep track of them and make sure they're doing okay. But yeah, it's, I think that it's hard, you know, cause then it's like, I think it's it kind of shows like, and I watched a couple too, like, oh, I forget what it was, but, um, you know, it was kind of like the job I was originally wanting to do for the FBI and stuff. And um, I just couldn't watch it. Cause I was just like, you know, it just made my mind whirl and yeah. But yeah, I totally agree with you though. Like I, like you said, you know, like reading certain, you know, like reading refills you, I, I found with the pandemic that reading's harder for me. And I know it's because uh-huh. I'm, we're asked to do a lot more than ever. And um, I'm just really burned out. But like, for instance, I've been watching a lot of Castle. Um, that's been helping me out. Uh, I love the book of Boba Fett. Um, uh, Legend of Vox Mahina was absolutely amazing. I watched the first three episodes last night. I really like um, the Masters of the Universe. Anything Masters of the Universe related, I'll watch. Um, I really like the new one, Revelations, because Tika is just like one of the coolest characters now of all time, rather than being like a damsel in distress or some horrible cliche. And she's just been awesome. She's got a cool partner and stuff. And that one did a lot of really cool things recently. But yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I really like TV. I find a lot of times that if I'm stuck on things, you know, reading wise or writing wise, that if I watch a certain show, it, you know, it helps push me in, you know, into a certain direction. So yeah, if you just let your brain kind of go on to screensaver mode for a while, it can work through things without consulting you. Yeah, yeah. And that can be really, really useful. So I will not say that anyone should listen to everything anyone says, myself included. Grain of salt. That's what my friend always says. Grain of salt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 
for that fourth one, but what is one thing that you've learned from writing a series that you wish you had known before you started? That wikis were going to become ubiquitous and easy to edit. So when you're a reader and when you're a reader and you notice that a character's middle name has changed, that stands out. Oh my God, how careless must the author have been? Ah, what, why were they not thinking of that? Oh my God. And you make note and, and you move on. When you're an author, if a character's middle name has changed, it's not because you didn't care. It's because you are holding 900 people in your head all the fucking time. And their continuity of existence depends entirely on you remembering what they like to eat for breakfast. That's so true. <laughs> Every book in a series locks down something else that you are not allowed to change. Uh, people say that they want growth, they want characters to develop, but they don't want them to develop past a certain point. Yeah. Even when they get mad at you for recapping too much, they still want you to remind them what every character looks like in every book. When I am describing my education, I will use the same phrase over and over again. When I'm describing myself or my D&D characters, I use the same phrase. Humans work in sound bites. They are so appealing to us because that is literally how our brains come together. So if you ask me to describe you and I described you, the odds are good that the second time I describe you, unless you have done something to piss me off, it will be the exact <laughs> And it won't be because I wrote it down and memorized it. It's because that is what I think when I look at you. So that is what I say. And that is, that is not okay in a book. I have literally, without consulting earlier books, typed up a description of a character in book five that I last described in book two, gone back and checked book two, and it's almost word for word because oh, wow. I'm describing the way that character looks. I am saying what they sound like. I am saying who they are in my head, and that's who they are. But people will accuse you of copying and pasting, mm -hmm. which I, I am irrationally incensed by people accusing me of things I didn't do. No, yeah, yeah. I realize that it's irrational. Um, I it's had, annoying, though. It's annoying, though. <laughs> I understand. It's annoying. That. My mother had some fairly abusive partners when I was a kid, and one of their favorite things was accusing me of lying when I wasn't. Mm. Oh, no, I didn't tell her to do that. She's lying to you. And so I get really mad about that, even when it's tiny little stuff that shouldn't make me mad. So somebody's like, oh, she copied and pasted this description from book two. Fuck you. No, I didn't. <laughs> thing I wish I had known. I wish I had realized just how incredibly attuned to detail faithful readers are. I, oh, I had yeah. never heard of it. I mean, also, I wish I had known what I think every author wishes, which I wish I had known how long I'd get to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I sold the first three October Day books as a set. Oh, okay. I sold them. There was a non-zero chance that we were going to turn in book three and my publisher was going to say, thank you so much. Have a nice life. That is what happens to the majority of urban fantasy series. Yeah. So I didn't know that I'd get to write book four, much less that I'd get to write book 14. And if I had known when I was setting up the series, how many books I would actually get, I would have paced certain things differently. And I would have locked certain doors at different times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes total sense, right? Because yeah, if you if you have no idea how long it's going to run, like that, that's I just think it's interesting uh, to hear people's you know different reaction and um, 
and their experiences, but that seems to be mm-hmm. a common thing. I know Will White talked about that recently on uh, like Wizards Warriors and Words where like he's about to be done with book 12 and he's like, you know, I really would, he said the same thing you did. He's like, I wish I would have ended some things here and done these things or maybe held off on some things or done some things sooner. So, mm-hmm. and I think, I think it's a good lesson, right? That like, you can only do what you can do at that time with the information yep. that you're given. So yeah, I think some people stress a little bit too much about it and it's like, well, I'll just I think just kind of get out there and tell your story. But yeah, so we have uh, your, so we have the October day, we have Kim Harrison's up for the summer after that. And then we have Faith Hunters, we have finished all the brigs. So I'm just like, like ready to go because <laughs> I just cool. love, 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 love urban fantasy. And for me, urban fantasy is like a newer love, um, which I am kind of surprised at. Like some of my friends in college had tried to get me to read, you know, um, you know, different books, but I was just so into a certain type of fantasy and science fiction that I was really glad once I had switched to urban fantasy because I discovered like, you know what? I actually like this a lot more than mm-hmm. um, some of the other ones uh, we just lost a couple of fans, I think, there for the podcast. But I do, I do love urban fantasy. I think you get, you know, really cool modern day issues, settings, and you just get so much history and culture. And you get to learn as I think it's because I'm a historian, you know, I'm a history teacher and I love learning different histories. And I think you just get so much cool stuff in there, you know, and you know, great authors like yourself are researching different things and throwing really cool things together. And it, you know, just really makes you wonder, you know, like what our world is really like and are you actually seeing the whole thing um you know or are there hidden parts that you know you actually don't get to see so i just think it ends up uh ends up making the everyday world that much more exciting i guess for me i argue fairly regularly that urban fantasy for all that in its current form it is a very new genre yeah in its overarching form is one of the oldest genres because i will make a serious case as a folklorist that urban fantasy is the modern manifestation of the fairy tale. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Oh, man, that'd make a really good paper. <laughs> oh, yeah, it would. I would. read that book. I would read But I'm book. not an academic anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> for money now. That's fair. That's fair. Oh, man. I would totally read that, though. If you ever get bored, you know, writing, you know, bestsellers and stuff, you want to do that. Or I was telling somebody, I was telling Richard Lee Byers, because I want him to do another one of these books from Forgotten Realms. I want it to be like, um, you know, like old school patrons from the Renaissance. I was like, yeah, I'll just pay you to just, you know, write the book for me. <laughs> and my buddy was like, that's such a good idea. Like, I was like, yeah, I don't think you'd get anybody because even if you pay someone $15,000, like, what happens if that book is like, an even, you know, bigger bestseller. I'm like, you just paid them for the book for yourself and then nobody else gets to read it. But yeah, I was like, uh, I told him, he's like, well, maybe, you know, they'll see this podcast and then Marvel and Wizards will get together (laughs) and want another one. But yeah, so if anybody wants to, uh, you know, to sponsor that book for you, that would be, I think that'd be an awesome read personally. That'd be really cool. Get my uh, folklore nerd brain going there. It'd be awesome. Uh, for that fifth one there, what is one writing tool or strategy that you have found to be the most valuable? Okay, so a piece of writing advice that you will get fairly regularly from a lot of different people is write every day. I think this is bullshit. I do write every day because my brain fills up and I need to dump it out. Mm-hmm. But if that's not what works for you, that's not what works for you. And that is fine. If you want to make writing a job, however, if this is your, your goal is to be a full-time author, that's what you want to do. You need to figure out how many days per week you can write and stay sane 
and how much you need to write per day. Do you measure it in words? Do you measure it in pages? Everybody's got something different. You can be successful writing 500 words a day. Terry Pratchett was. You can be successful writing a lot more than that per day. Um, and one of my primary uh, productivity tools is dice. Oh, cool. So every day I get up and I figure out divided by 10, how many words I need to write. Is today a 2,000 word day? Is today a 4,000 word day? How many words do I need to have at the end of the day that I didn't have to start? And then I take a number of D10s equal to that many thousand words and I line them up at the very top of my keyboard with the numbers set to zero. So I'll start my day and I've got all of these dice looking at me with their zeros. Now, if I get up from my keyboard for any reason, I need to see what a cat is doing, I need to get a drink, I need to make lunch, I will first increment the last die in the row down by the number of hundred words that I have written. So if I get up and I've written 600 words, I'll turn that first die from a 10 to a four. And then when I finish the die, when I write another 400 words, that die goes away. So I have a constant visual reminder, both of my progress and of how much work I have to do before I can say the day is mine again. That's a great idea. From a productivity standpoint, it is incredibly useful. I am way, I, it's tiny, but I am infinitely more likely to actually sit and stay focused if the dice are looking at me than if the keyboard is clear. And part of that is that I have trained myself to view the dice as work that is left to be done. So if there are no dice, clearly I'm free, <laughs> I like. But um, it, it really does help. And I carry dice with me when I travel. I have a little bag in my purse that's got a bunch of D10s in it. And dice come in so many different colors and, and designs recently. You know, we were talking a little bit about D&D earlier. I collect dice, I have probably thousands of dice. I have every kind of color inclusion you can think of, but you can find dice that make you happy to look at them. So every day you're adding a little visual interest to your working space. So even if the laptop is in the same place, do I feel like today is a sparkle dice day or is today a metal dice day? Doesn't matter. As long as the numbers are clear and easy for you to read, it's good enough. That, first of all, that is an amazing idea. And I really like that, but just having a visual, you know, productivity, you know, marker or schedule, I think is just, uh, I think it's a great way, especially if it works for you, you know, to maintain that level. And that's what I always worry about. I'm taking the summer off uh, to write. And that's what I'm most worried about is how am I going to keep track of my productivity? You know, how am I going? Because a lot of people I talk to who take their first summer off to write. A lot of teachers I know that are authors, they, they don't get a lot done the first, like they chill around for the first two weeks. That third week, they start to stress, they get a little done. Then all of a sudden they only have like two, two and a half weeks to write before the school year starts again. So I think that that is actually a really good tool. And I'm going to try and find, if not the same thing, something similar, you mm -hmm. know, just because so, I feel like I'm that type of person where that to me really- That would help. Track. Yeah, I have to keep checking now, activity. One thing I will say, so I quit my day job. Um, I worked for a nonprofit organization that gave us the time from Christmas Eve to New Year's off every year. So we got two weeks off every year. And most years I would get to that time and I would go on a trip. I would go to Disney or I would go and see a friend or something. And the, the day that I realized I had to quit my job was when we hit the, the office is closed now. You can go home two weeks, no work. And I had plane tickets to fly to Maine the next day to see a friend of mine, and I, I couldn't do it. I was so exhausted. I just collapsed crying. 
And I spent literally the first week of my two week break lying on the couch, watching an unending law and order SVU marathon on uh, USA network because USA will air law and order for 24 hour blocks. Yeah, yeah. Left the TV on. I didn't get off the couch. I slept on the couch. I occasionally got up to use the bathroom or get more ice cream. I didn't shower because I was too exhausted, both emotionally and physically. And I realized I couldn't do this anymore. It was killing me. So the reason a lot of people don't get much done for the first week or two is that you're tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if what your brain and your body is telling you for that first week is I'm tired, you need to let me watch TV or play Mario Kart or go for long walks and look at trees. Listen to your body. You will get more work done in week three if you take weeks one and two to recover. And I know that sounds counterproductive. It's hard for me to remember sometimes. They'll be like, I'm wasting time. I'm wasting time. But if you force yourself, you do bad work and bad work takes longer to fix than it just take that day. No, I think that's a great, I think that's great advice. My friend had said, you know, like, you know, for him, like now, like he actually just does, I think he does the first, he leaves that first week open. And literally for the five days, like he gets his kids on to, you know, to wherever their, their camp or whatever it is. And then literally when he gets home, he, he literally doesn't do anything, you know, from that time until like, it's time to pick them up. And then once he gets them home, you know, he'll do chores and stuff, but he literally for that first, it's at least five days now, he says he's, you know, gotten better at it, but yeah, he doesn't do anything. But the first couple, it was like, he think he took the first week and a half off and just kind of went from there. And kind of figured out what a good balance was but totally yeah. and I think that's why because I, I talked to a lot of you know authors that are also teachers and you know I think that's right. what I was worried about this year is this has been the hardest year and I've been in public schools now working for 15 years and it's like this has been the hardest year and I think that's what I'm most worried about this year but I think that's great advice though because you know you can't write you can't write you know and it does yep. take a long time I stopped writing my second draft right now because Every time I wrote something for it, it was crap. And I know I just need some time to, to let it sit. So I think that's... Yeah, you need to let your brain do its processing. And that's not always a thing that you can force. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's great advice. Uh, so I'm really interested, like I said, before we started recording for this sixth question. So you've earned a spot on the Hugo ballot a whopping 23 times. Now, do you find this more stressful on your writing now or more of a motivator or it's just kind of like something that happens? So when I'm writing, I'm not actually thinking about much except what I'm writing. I am a champion disassociator. So I go to what is on the other side of the page and I stay there until I'm finished. When I'm not writing, I find that it is stressful. Um, I've been nominated a whopping 23 times. I've won once. Technically, I've won three times because the podcast I was part of won twice. But I've won once. And because I show up on the ballot so often, people tend to go, oh, Seanan's won. It's someone else's turn now. You know, oh, Seanan's on the ballot three times. I'm sure she'll win one of them. I just won't vote for her in this category. Mm. And I people exist because sometimes they apologize to me when I didn't win, which is like, I don't want to know you didn't vote for me. Yeah, yeah. It's okay that you didn't vote for me. Vote for who you want but please don't come up to me afterward and go, I was so sure you were going to win that I voted for X. Um, I I find it very stressful because I have been nominated more times in a 10 year period than anyone else ever. Yeah. 
people will, you know, people were calling me the usual suspects in my second year of eligibility, uh, which was not great for my ego. Um, I never got to be one of the new kids. I went straight from zero to firmly established. We can mock her because she's a usual suspect. And it's upsetting sometimes to show up every year in my fancy dress and, you know, make effort and they never say my name. And that is the most arrogant complaint I have that, oh no, oh no, poor me. I get so many Hugo nominations. But it is, it is disheartening on some level to constantly be told you are good enough to get here, but you're not good enough to let inside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I just keep, it, it, at this point, it just makes me keep trying to get better. I just keep trying to push that extra inch that will put me over the top. And, you know, there's a big uh, conversation going on right now about something called squee core, which people are saying is shallow work that only exists to make you happy. I like all fiction to make me happy. I like even the upsetting fiction to make me happy. That's why I consume it. But um, talking about, you know, who is good enough and, and who matters enough and who is relevant enough to be in the room. And I think we're all good enough and relevant enough to be in the room, but I think we're all also people. We're going to have opinions. There's never, ever, before or after I was appearing on the ballot, been a Hugo ballot where 100% of the winners were the things I would have chosen. And being on the ballot means that I cannot participate in the time-honored tradition of complaining about the winners after the Hugos are done. Because if I complain, even if it's about a category I wasn't in, it's sour grapes. Mm. And that was a major emotional adjustment for me because I've been in the community since I was a teenager and I am used to after the Hugos going, oh, well, that one, well, that's some bullshit. And being able to have that conversation. And so having that outlet just suddenly cut off was very disconcerting. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you said a lot of the same things that like, um, like for instance, like that Will, right? Will White had brought up um, recently in an interview. And, you know, he said like, for instance, like one of his uh, friends had, you know, this book and people asked him what he thought about it. And he said, I loved it. And he said, nine great things about it but said one negative thing and was just being honest and honest review and then everybody was like why don't you like so-and-so's book so he was Mm -hmm. like I feel like now I can't even express an opinion because now it's it's Will White's opinion and I was just like wow I'm like that's a huge setback if I for me personally I feel like if I can't just be honest about a book like I don't know it's interesting that's why I left Goodreads oh yeah 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 I used to hang out on Goodreads and I had my profile as a reader. It was not an official thing. I was not getting paid. No one was sending me books. It was just Sean and Reed's books. And I got multiple people yelling at me because I had three star a book. And the, in there, there's never been a universal, what does one through five mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, five basically changed my life. It changed who I am as a person. I had an orgasm when I touched the cover. It spits out kittens, best book ever. There are very few five-star books in my world. Um, A four is this book is amazing. I will read it again. And a three is this book was really good. I enjoyed it. I did not waste my time. I am not sorry I read it. So I would three-star books that I was not necessarily going to read again. And then people contacting me privately to yell at me because I had dragged down the ratings of a book. And they needed me to increase my star rating so as not to hurt them. 
And I both didn't want to get yelled at and I didn't want to risk turning into one of those people by continuing to engage. Because even though I think not, there are not as many four star books as the reviewers say there are, because I know how people take a four star versus a I admit my feelings get a tiny bit hurt when someone I know rates one of my books at a three. And then I shrug and do my absolute best to forget which friend that was and move on. No, I think it's, uh, I just thought it was interesting because I've heard a couple people talk about just different things that success has, you know, has brought them like issues that they never would have thought they've had to deal with before, you know, just different things like you mentioned. So I just think it is, you know, it is something that is an interesting topic to be discussed because when Will said that, I was like, I love my Goodreads account. And I was like, do I really want to be one of those people that can't just go on my Goodreads and just rate a book. Right. It just seems, and also just seems really silly to me that people are messaging you, you know, about a th- like for, for me, again, a three star, I, I like, if it's a book I liked, it's three stars. If, a, if it's a book I really enjoyed, I'll do four. If it's like you said, like a book that, you know, spits kittens, then, you know, I'll do five. I haven't had a lot of five lately. I have per- personally read a lot of good, you know, like amazing books that I thought were fours. Um, I think it's because I'm getting a lot of better recommendations rather than just Mm -hmm. on my own. And I've just had a a really good luck of, you know, once I've connected. (coughs) Yeah, I I would never, this is the kind of thing that drives me nuts. I would never like message an author anywhere and be like, even if you gave my book a two and be like, why did you, I'm like, that would never occur to me. (laughs) Like, You know what my friends and I call Tahani, this is what my friends and I call a Tahani problem. Where like it's it's a problem that most people would like to have, but it's still a problem when it's happening. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That kind of stuff drives me nuts. Like, um, I'm totally blanking on Sarah's last name. Um, but uh, my friends with her, and she's you know editing different books, and she said like one guy messaged her, you know, and it's a time difference. It's a 14 hour time difference. So the guy messages her like his book or an excerpt or something, which you shouldn't do on Facebook anyway. Yeah, no, you should not. I would never do that. And then, you know, she hasn't responded in eight hours. So he just like starts messaging. And then by the end, he's like all these expletives, you know, and mm-hmm. like, I just woke up. <laughs> like, and she's got like just messages and messages. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I would never do that. Yeah, I, I think I saw that on Twitter. Actually. Yeah, it was crazy. That, like that was, guy was a beautiful what not to do. Illustrator. Yeah, yeah, literally. Yep. Like you could literally like, like one of my friends messaged me like a mutual and he was like do you think that was real <laughs> so I was like I do think it's sadly real. yes I do yes. yeah he was like but like it's so over the top and I was like have, have you met some people <laughs> like yeah I was just like it was crazy but yeah I definitely think that uh that it's it, it's interesting to really think again about you know different pop you know problems that pop up for different people I think sometimes think you know the writing community is just authors and not editors or you know like um um, a name that I will not name, but um, an author went on about probably five or six years ago with his cover and did a, um, oh, uh, you know, I'll give a free signed copy of this book if you guys can uh, give me the, the best, worst um, explanation of this book cover. And, you know, and the artist I had known on Facebook uh, and Twitter, and that was their first major piece of art. Um, for I believe it was told mm. you know it was just like it was like seriously like this is how somebody is going to act towards somebody that you know I consider part of the community so yeah 
kind of crazy at times, but. People get weird. Um, and even when we understand that we share a community, it can be easy to forget that yeah. for short periods of time. You also wind up running into issues like, there was a big thing going around Twitter a couple months ago of please be kind to editors and agents. They are experiencing global trauma. So they're slow right now. And I'm like, on the one hand, yes, we should all be kind to everyone because we are all experiencing global trauma. On the other hand, is global trauma giving me an extension on my deadline? Yeah, no. <laughs> because if global trauma is not giving me an extension on my deadline, I would like global trauma to give me my edits when it said I was going to get them. Yeah, yeah. And that is not me trying to be nasty. That, that's just, I have to get this book finished and turned in on time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think a thing too is like people, you know, like don't understand is like, like for instance, like I woke up today, I didn't really feel the best, you know? I just, I'm exhausted and I'm like, I'm announcing games, I'm coaching. I, I had two practices I was supposed to run today. And I just said to, you know, I private message them on our school app. I'm like, I, I'm not going to make it. I'm like, if people want their grades done on time, you know, tomorrow and, you know, I, I got, an, I'm going to be observed. I'm like, you know, I made an agreement to do these things. I'm like, these other things are extra and I really have to not do those things. And, uh -huh. you know, it's like, but I consider the things that I'm contracted to do. I, I have to get those things done. And I just think that if you are going to be part of this community and you are going to say that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this thing at on XYZ date, like it really needs to be done, you know, obviously things happen, you know, but oh, yeah. at the same time, I think you have to have the same expectations for everybody, you know, and I, I definitely agree with you. I had some author friends that, you know, had messaged me and are like, you know, same thing, like I have deadlines coming up, you know, like some people hadn't, you know, gotten COVID even and still, you know, still gotten stuff in there on time. So yeah, it's definitely a, Definitely an interesting time. <laughs> that's for sure. Yep. But I think if people forget at the same time that, you know, everybody um, is in the same boat uh, for the most part. But and that everybody's human, you know, prior to COVID. The biggest one. Yeah. Biggest lesson, right? Yeah. Prior to COVID. And this is not a thing that I'm saying everyone should be doing. This is a thing I was able to do because of certain life choices I have made, including not having children. Um, but prior to COVID, I made an effort to go to New York once a year minimum and visit my publishers. And I found that it did make a difference in how enthusiastic they were about marketing my books and working with me because they remembered I was a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't just one more name on the list of authors. I was that nice girl who brought in donuts, you know, and, and that is not a thing that is required or that everyone can just do. And I know that, and I understand the privilege inherent in saying that that's a thing that I liked to do. Um, but forgetting that people are human when you never see them is far too easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like we've all been isolated from each other for just long enough now that we're not people anymore. We are noise generators on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or pictures on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like a couple of people I always wanted, like I've responded to on, I, I usually try not to say anything, but like there are some people that just, like you said, just forget that people are human and there were a couple just situations that popped up recently and I'm just like, I responded. I'm like, seriously? I'm like, you're going to like, you know, take somebody. I don't know. I just saw somebody who went on and ripped one of my author friends and it wasn't necessarily anything that was, it wasn't anything about their book. It wasn't anything about their writing style. 
It was just the fact that they're a certain person. And I was like, <laughs> what? they weren't treating them like they were a person. <laughs> it, was, I was just like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. I was like, it's 2022. I'm like, we all just went through this really traumatic thing. And I'm like, you learn nothing. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like, just go, like, just, just go. We don't need you here. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, we're all human. And that's why I like doing podcasts personally, because, you know, it, it really makes, you know, um, you know, like I followed you for a while on, you know, on Twitter. And again, like you said, right, it makes that person a person rather than, you know, uh, and I like to present that, you know, to people too, on like our channel and stuff is that these authors are people, you know, like, mm-hmm. not that you shouldn't rate a book, you know, or whatever, like, you know, you, you know, every author needs ratings, but also, you know, just like you were saying, Remember, there's a human in there. Yeah, there's a human there, like just at the core concept, like, please just treat Yeah, I did a Magic the Gathering podcast um, late last year. I hate January because you always wind up talking about last year like it was forever ago and it was two weeks ago. Um, but I, I did a Magic the Gathering podcast last year and uh, it was scheduled at my dinner time. So when the podcaster came on, came on the camera, I was still eating dinner which was an acorn squash. And I had dropped my fork and was too lazy to go to the kitchen and get another fork. So the first thing he saw of me was me eating an acorn squash with my fingers. Believe me, he knows I'm human. <laughs> Man, now I'm hungry. Acorn squash sounds so good. That's like one of my favorite vegetables. Acorn squash is one of my favorite things. I like to cut them in half in the, you know, in the fall. And, and then roast them. them. Yeah, just roast them. Oh my gosh. My wife's like, what are you cooking? I'm like, an acorn squash. Like, I guess, I, I guess I'm from Michigan. I didn't know that, like, New Yorkers, like, didn't eat acorn squash, apparently. But. So this last year, I discovered bougie acorn squash. Okay. There are varieties of acorn squash. I did not know this. <laughs> right? You've got the standard green that you get in the grocery store that kind yeah. of turns orange sometimes. And then you have sweet dumplings. And sweet dumplings taste like pumpkin pie. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like just oh. mind blowing acorn squash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. I definitely have to check that out. We used to grow like uh, acorn squash, like um, in my parents' garden. Now I just love it because, like, you know, you'd be done, and then it's like, you know, you'd have like thirty of them, and you got to cook them. So we would literally cook them up like every Sunday night, and you know, just we chop them in half. My dad would—he's a great cook, so he'd do all sorts of different stuff or or bake them. And yeah. I, I love acorn squash. People thought it was so weird when I got here. And I'm like, that's my fall thing. They're like, you eat that? I'm like, you guys eat some weird stuff around here in Long Island and stuff. I'm like, you think it's weird to eat a squash? Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I love acorn squash. Yay. Um, Yeah. So for that seventh one there, I really loved when I was looking at your website that you were doing an autobiographical web comic. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about with friends like these? Sounds really cool. So um, my friends and I are ridiculous people. And several <laughs> years ago, well, God, way too many years ago to think about because time is linear and I don't <laughs> like it. Uh, my PA, Kate, said, you know, we're basically a walking webcomic. And so I started drawing the webcomic that was us just being, you know, messing about. And there is a small archive of it on my website. They are very small. Uh, unfortunately, I can't make bigger versions of most of those because mm. I since sold the originals mm. um, and it, it's my irregularly posted autobiographical webcomic that is really cool <laughs> thinking i'm gonna get back to it but i'm not yeah, yeah, yeah i just thought that was such a cool concept like i know um you know like i have uh, emily Inkpen coming on um next weekend and she like they just sold um her and a couple friends i, I think there's two friends 
uh, co-wrote it with her, uh, a web drama. Uh, so for me, I just, I always like hearing just different things like that. And web comics, uh, I always love web comics. Uh, oh yeah. Elite was a great one from back in the day to introduce me to web comics and I'm a huge comics fan. So when I saw that on your website, I was like, that's really cool. So uh, yeah, I still have my list or? of daily web comics. Oh, that's cool. Are, are they still on your website then? Oh, with friends like these is on my website. Oh, um, cool, cool. I didn't have a chance I to click list on of, yet. I have the list of comics that I read daily. Oh, that's cool. What are some of your favorite ones to read? I love Dumbing of Age by David Willis. Okay. Uh, he previously did um, Short Pact, which was a comic about toy collecting, which is something that he and I both do and that we bonded over. Uh, I love something positive and have been reading it the entire time it's been going. And that comic is eternal at this point. I love Girl Genius. Oh, that's a good one. And, and then getting a little bit raunchier, Ogloff is some of the best work going on in webcomics today. It is frequently pornographic, so I don't recommend it for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freaking hilarious. Yeah. One of my friends, like, got me into some different, like, ones recently, and that was one. And I was just like, there was some really great writing. I was just like, it was really funny. <laughs> and I feel right? like, like it reminded me of ones that I originally gotten in me into web comics so yeah the porn comic should not be as funny as Ogloff is and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well that's like I was talking to a friend of mine about you know different um oh you know like just different uh just different mediums and stuff and you know and he made a good point he was like good writing is good writing you know and he's mm -hmm. like genres are really just there just to be you know helpful towards readers and I said that's yep. actually a really great point so genres are there to be a menu yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a series that I read a couple of years ago now, which we joke about being the series with the best accidental publicity campaign ever. Um, when I, before pre-pandemic, when I was in a big, let's read all the pandemic fiction phase, which is a thing I go through every couple of years. And so I had gone looking for fiction about pandemics and I found this book that had plague in the title and was supposed to be about this horrible global pandemic and everybody died. And oh my God, it's so tragic. And so I'm like, yes, that is exactly 100% what I am looking for. Yeah. So I bought the book and it's not about a plague at all. It's not about a pandemic at all. It's about an alien invasion. <laughs> now I went back about a year later and reread it as an alien invasion book because I picked up the other two in the trilogy and I wanted to finish it. And as an alien invasion book, it's great. It's suspenseful, it's gripping, it's surprising. As a pandemic book, it's bullshit. Yeah, because it was sold to me as a pandemic book, because my expectations were set for a pandemic book. My first read of the book was this is terrible. It's the Vegemite problem. Yeah. Americans very frequently hate Vegemite because when you hand an American a piece of bread with something brown smeared on it, they think peanut butter. Yeah. yeah. And so you bite into the bread with Vegemite expecting sweet and what you get is salty and umami. Even if that is a flavor you would have liked under other circumstances, you are likely to reject it for not being peanut butter, which is unfair to the Vegemite. And the way that you get around that is by setting expectations very clearly. Here is a piece of bread with Vegemite. The Vegemite is salty, okay? You are about to eat a salty thing. When you take a bite, it will be salty. And what psychologists have found is that saying it three times will usually get over that mental hurdle. But without it, it is rejected for, for being bad peanut butter. And Australians have the same issue with peanut butter. Yeah. Genre is setting that salty expectation. Genre is saying, this is what you are about to consume. 
You may not consciously know all of the conventions you are expecting, but they are in here, or if they're not in here, they are knowingly and intentionally subverted in an interesting way. I think you make a great point there. Like for instance, like for my classroom even, like I have reset the expectation from the start on exactly what we're gonna teach, how we're gonna teach it. And I had a parent get upset with me for coaching this year. Um, and they were like, oh, like you said this. I go, no, I actually said this was the expectation and we followed it the whole time. And I uh -huh. said, the thing that you're upset is, is that the end result you thought was gonna be different, but really it's what I've said, you know, has been linear the whole time and I've never said anything different. And, you know, and I think a lot of people this year in particular, like students have told me like, I think they're enjoying it a lot more because again, we set that expectation of what, what it was gonna be and it's throughout the entire time. And yep. I definitely think that when it comes to genre, like you're, you know, have said, it's like, I think when I'm reading certain reviews, I think that's where a lot of people are getting caught up and, you know, where a lot of reviews personally I've seen recently drop, um, you know, as particularly in the indie community is where, you know, people are trying to sell a book as being something else. And, you know, and then people go in with that expectation, right? They want peanut butter, but instead they get Vegemite or they want Vegemite and they get peanut butter. So I definitely think it is really important to, you know, as a Honesty. reader, also, you know, as an author, yeah, to put a, you know, a good expectation on it. Yep. Honesty is the best policy. I, I collect generation one, my little pony. Hey. And uh, so I buy a lot of my little ponies off of eBay and Etsy and all that sort of thing. Cause that's where you can find them. And when I do a search on a site and say, I am looking for my little pony generation one mountain boy, which is one of the groups of ponies. And what I get is eight pages of results from generation four or eight pages of results that are adjacent. I am not buying a pony from you today. So if you tell me that your happy Regency romance is a hard boiled military thriller, you are not getting a book sale from me today. No, it makes total sense. Like I actually, it's funny that you brought that up because I was looking for, um, Oh, this particular, I wanted a book of Boba Fett and I wanted a particular, I wanted a particular one and everybody on a couple of different sites was like, yeah, we have this one. I click on it. It's totally something different. And I'm like, I don't even know how you're in my search engine. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I'm uh -huh. looking for this one company's figure in the box. And then one guy had it out of the box. I'm like, no, unopened. It literally says unopened on your site. And then you have one open. I'm like, drives me nuts when people do that. So I definitely understand, you know, where, you know, like I've had that happen too with plenty of books and, you know, I'm, I had a couple recently that I just kind of put down and like, I'm sure I'll like this in a little bit yeah. now that I know what actual genre it is instead of what genre people were trying to sell it as, or tried to sell it to me as not even, you know, cause sometimes I think it's other readers too, are like, Oh, it's a mix of this and this. And it is to them, but not necessarily to everybody, yeah. you know, my mistake as a reader, I guess, or, you know, listening to those people, but yeah, sometimes I, and I, I do. I do have to force myself not to review those books because it's not fair. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And I, I've seen a couple reviews recently where I'm just like, you, you know, I like, I've seen people who, authors who have, you know, definitely sold their book wrong, but I've also seen people who, you know, thought it was going to be something different. And I think that's where you also get into a, a dangerous precedent with trying to tell, you know, people, like I've seen a lot of authors do this, particularly in indie 
um, you know, and some actual trad published authors do it on their website. Like, oh, my book is this and this mixed together. Well, it is from your perspective, but what if that's not the same for everybody? Or how, maybe they don't take your book that way. Um, right. I definitely think that that's a, at times it can be helpful, but I definitely think sometimes too, that that can be kind of a, of a dangerous, you know, precedent or expectation to set. Yeah. And that happens because it is expected of both indie and trad pub authors that you will figure out what are called your comp titles as part of selling the book. And that, that can get a little bit weird sometimes when you're trying to find comp titles for something really outside the norm. Um, It can be a fun game. It's not necessarily my favorite fun game. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's funny. Well, like, for instance, like one, like Michael R. Fletcher's one with like Beyond Redemption and they like played this game on their podcast and like somebody for one of his reviews said it was, uh, they had to guess which one of the authors it was and which book it was like of theirs and everybody was stumped and <laughs> it was like, it's a mix between um, an urban fantasy and Pokemon and like nobody knew what it was. And I was like stumped because I read a lot of the the author's uh, books who, and I'm like, I don't understand what this person was trying to say. And then they said it was his book, his first book, Beyond Redemption. And I'm just like, I don't think I consider that Pokemon. And it, we, were, we were kind of laughing in one uh, group I was in who were listening to it. And we're like, maybe we don't know what Pokemon is. Or maybe that person has never played or watched Pokemon before. But, you know, it's, it was interesting though, is like bringing up yeah. expectation. But yeah, it gets interesting after a while. And I, I, you know, I do agree with you. There's a lot of, um, you know, trad published authors who I've seen probably like right before the pandemic, I think it was really popular, you know, to do that. That was when I think, I believe uh, Milfitz and Seven came out right about that time with Cameron Johnson and, um, you know, where he's got a mix between the the fairy tale um, um, villains and the Magnificent Seven. And I think that worked really well because I think like, you know, he did a really good job for pulling those from those two things and putting them together. But I definitely think there was a huge push for that about two or three years ago. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I think it's hard at times because not everybody follows that type of, that type of thinking. So it makes it hard for expectations. Yes. Uh, that last one, I'm really interested now uh, in your answer for this last one. You mentioned, you know, a couple of, you know, um, genres and different things that have influenced you, but who are three authors or writers who have most influenced your writing style? Uh, Stephen King, White. I don't think that that's really arguable in any way, shape, or form. You can see the echoes of him through everything I do, including what some people call my tragic inability to write a satisfying ending. You know, I, I do my best. Um, Peter Beagle. Mm. He wrote The Last Unicorn. Yeah. And there's that game that people play where they're like, oh, if you could forget anything that you have loved, just, just delete it from your mind. Eternal sunshine of the spotless, of the spotless mind yourself. So you could experience it again for the first time, what would it be? And I'm always very baffled by that question because literally half of my voix is in conversation with The Last Unicorn by Peter Beagle. Hmm. It is me still processing through my third grade feelings about The Last Unicorn. So I don't think I could write most of my own work if I had never read that book. Interesting. Um, You know, we are shaped by the things that we experience and- I always find that question just a little horrifying. Like, who the hell would I even be if you kicked this foundational book out from underneath me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then probably Robin McKinley, Ooh. Um, who did a whole lot of fairy tale retellings, 
She's done some urban fantasy, though that is not her what she is primarily known for. And she was the first person to sh show me, not just tell me, but actually show me in a fictional setting that it's okay that I want to beat things to death with a hammer. I really want to interrogate stories until I am done. I want to sit down with whatever story has caught my eye, whatever monomyth or uh, structure is currently obsessing me and tell it and retell it until I find the angle from which it seems finished to me. And uh, Robin McKinley did Beauty as one of her first books and it's a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. And then she came back later and did Rose Daughter and it's a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. And the fact that she was allowed to do that really opened up a lot of channels for me as an author. And those are some great authors right there. <laughs> I always like to ask that one. But you actually gave me a really good one too. I like that, uh, you know, uh, I just talked about that recently with some friends, you know, like what book, if you could go back, like if you could erase your, yeah, your memory of that book and then go back and read again for the first time, like which book would it be and or which movie would it be or, you know, something like that. So I think that's a, a great question. I think, it, yeah, it kind of has to be something that you really, really enjoyed that you'd want to do again or that you did for the first time under bad circumstances. Mm. Like there are, we all have things in our lives that have been tainted by their surroundings rather than the things yeah. themselves. I had a housemate who was obsessed with Babylon 5 and wanted me to be in Babylon 5. And the way that he tried to accomplish this was by describing each episode to me in such minute detail that it took him longer to describe an episode than it would have taken me to watch it. I have people I trust and love who tell me Babylon 5 is an amazing show. I believe them. I just can't watch it. Yeah, yeah. It's ruined now. <laughs> why I've got his voice in my head droning. Yeah. Unfair of me to try and form an actual opinion of the show when I can't shut that voice off. Uh, but I don't think we can delete anything truly foundational. Yeah, yeah. I can't take out The Last Unicorn. I can't take out a lot of the works of Stephen King. I have one tattoo and it's a Stephen King quote, you know, if I deleted it from my memory, I read that book for the first time when I was younger than the members of the Losers Club. And I have read it at least once a year ever since. I'm older than the adult members of the Losers Club now. And having grown with these characters and experienced my life at the same pace as them is a part of who I am as a person. Take that out and I don't know me. Yeah. So that is a much more dangerous question than we tend to think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think you make a great point with that is how do you, how do you get rid of something foundational? Like I read, um, for totally blanking on who the author was, it's been a while, but um, I always used to read Shadows of the Empire over and over again. Uh, mm -hmm. Splinters of the Mind's Eye, that was after A New Hope, and it was supposed to be the sequel and not Empire Strikes Back, so they did different things, and both of those books were were written really well, and I think Anne McCaffrey is another one um, when Dragon Riders of Pern, where it's like, there's some other ones that like, if I had never, you know, read them, I don't think I'd be writing my own, you know, books. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't be reading certain genres, you know, even. And I think that'd be a shame, you know, as I used yep. to read science fiction, you know, and I, <laughs> you know, fantasy. Which, kind of thing, so. which books have that foundational grip are different for every person. Yeah. Yeah, it gets interesting, too, when you find, you know, everybody's got, some people share some, right? Like, I think Stephen King, you know, 
a lot of people share. I read a lot of Stephen King, particularly in middle school and um, like The Stand and, you know, some uh -huh. other that were just like. I mean, Catherine Valenti, who is one of my best friends, when we first met, we did not get along. We had been set up to dislike each other by the people that were introducing us. Mm. And so we just cheerfully didn't get along for like four days. And then somebody, we were on a BART train heading back to my house and someone got on the train with very red hair. And for whatever reason, I said, her hair is winter fire, January embers. And Kat's head snapped around like she had just heard a gun being cocked and went, my <laughs> too. And we were instantly best friends because we had this foundational book in common. Mm. Yeah, it's always cool when you can find like your book BFF. <laughs> like, yep. You know, and, you know, because especially, you know, like there are certain books that hit you certain ways. So if you can find somebody, you know, that, it also hit in that way and it it's it is very has a very deep meaning right yeah it's very interesting all right well again you know i really want to thank you for coming on and it's so funny that you mentioned your um your dice obsession because uh my book club bud and i uh he's always teasing me about the fact that you know i buy too many dice and there is uh, no such thing <laughs> and thank you so i'm gonna tell him that now <laughs> Tell him he is a foolish, foolish man. There is no such thing as too many dice. I just, when you were saying that, I was trying not to burst out laughing because I was like, the first thing I'm going to do once we get done with this is uh, I'm going to text him that you also have a dice obsession and now he can back off. So <laughs> it's just so funny to me. I have two full-sized card catalogs full of dice. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. That's not all my dice. Um, also be sure to tell him that Dice Envy currently has a sale on mystery dice sets. It's $5.99 for one of their mystery dice sets of, uh, of that's cool. Including one of their jumbo D20s. Absolutely brilliant. They have beautiful dice. Oh, that's awesome. Definitely have to check that out. Uh, I, you know, again, like I said, thank you so much for coming on. I was really, really happy when you got back to me and I know everybody's really going to enjoy this interview. So, uh, as soon as we get everything, uh, you know, all set for it later today, I will send you the link and the calendar. Okay, great situated uh anybody Thank you for having uh, me. yeah of course anytime anytime you want to come back and chat dice acorn squash or you know writing or stephen king you know you just let me know and we'll set it up so okay great <laughs> awesome well again thanks you to our audience for tuning in to another episode of the fantasy and sci-fi fanatics podcast if you have not checked out the website yet please make sure you do we'll have author profiles up there where you can find this link all of our author profiles and things like that uh by the time this airs so Thank you again, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, thank you so much for showing up. Have a good rest of your Sunday, okay? I look Great. forward to you too. you soon. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye.